Welcome back to another WSL episode. And I have been saying that ever since I think we started this pod, so I think I should come up with a, a new introduction to not get repetitive on that one. But I'm your host, Alex Ibaceta, and I'm with Abdul Abdullah, and Jesse is back from their holiday, gracing us with their presence again. How are you two? Abdullah, let's start. I'm good. I think we were just complaining about being tired, so I think... That's that's the appropriate way to start and uh, just hard. But you know what? Always excited to be recording with you too. So here we are. Jesse, how was France? How was Mickey Mouse and seeing everything from afar? Yeah, it was a it was a rubbish weekend to miss, really, because it was a lot of fun. Um, I I tried my best to like not pay attention to the WSL out of politeness to my girlfriend. Um, but I, I kind of like sneakily, like long bathroom breaks, you know, that kind of stuff to, to keep an eye on what's going on. But yeah, great to be back. Just keenly, just eight minute pee break in the middle of dinner, just like that. <laughs> just watching Chelsea City. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. Don't worry, I, I do the same, but it's, we're just, I'm just lucky that I have someone that appreciates football. Not as much as I do, probably, but can support my my football madness kind of thing. I'm but anyway, single, so it's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm just on my own, so we're good. We're good. It's a lot easier that way. You don't have to take eight minute bathroom breaks. Exactly. Um, I can just sit and do whatever. <laughs> but yeah, um, Arsenal get a two 0 win at Manchester United and stay top of the table. And Chelsea bang out a five win five 0 win over Birmingham City. Shocking. Uh, Birmingham City still keep a one-point advantage over Leicester City, though, uh, who sit at the bottom of the table with zero points. Uh, Jesse's favorite two managers went to head, head-to-head. Ollie Harder got the better of Ryan Skinner. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's finally the only Ollie at the wheel now as well, <laughs> taking his rightful place. <laughs> it's true. He's, he's the only one in now. But anyway, yeah, West Ham got a big 1-0 win over Spurs, who I'm pretty sure we mentioned last last um, episode that this would be kind of a very telling matter for, for Spurs and like where they really, really are. But we'll get into that later. Uh, we'll start with Arsenal 2, Man United 0. McCabe gets a penalty, he takes a penalty, scores it. That's shocking. And Viv Medium scores again. Shocking. Um, I did research today of the top five contenders for the Ballon d'Or and I had to kind of write all their headlights headline achievements um and vivs look like a proper essay compared to everyone else just because of everything that she's done so far so this weekend she became the first wsl player to score against every single team she's played against um very casually thought that was really interesting a random stat also who keeps track of that who's who's the one person who's just keeping track of that um but yeah i was as an arsenal fan i was a bit nervous for this game considering how previously they've done in manchester and after that really dreadful Spurs match and the Champions League match it wasn't really too convincing they did win well but it did take a long time for them to kind of get that goal scoring started but Arsenal did the job and I'm a bit relieved but Man United are having trouble on the attack again 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 finishing with just one shot on target from their seven attempts though they did edge possession with 52 percent but it's not too shocking when you look at the way that Jonas wants to play um but it, it really wasn't the greatest day for Arsenal either who finished with five shots on target from their 15 attempts so a lot could be said I think it was just a really bad day 
for both sides. <laughs> it wasn't really the greatest game considering the matchup that it should be, but um, Leo Valti, Frida Manum and Kim Little started in the midfield and I quite liked it overall. Um, I think Valti has stepped up a lot when she's been playing. She's been injured obviously for the past couple of weeks, but she's slowly starting getting her starting position back. If I could say that, probably not. Um, but she does need to adjust quite a lot to what Idaval wants as a pivot. With Joe, she was a very like stereotypical six who would drop in between the center backs to collect the ball, start really, really deep, focus on more collecting the ball really deep and giving it to an eight or someone else. Um, and you heard Idaval from the bench screaming at her a lot to, to get up. He was very frustrated with that. Um, but I think that's the big reason why you would see Freedom Adam's position a bit more. But I think once Valti gets the hand of staying high and, and not wanting to drop naturally, I think this midfield could potentially be the best one to start. Um, obviously, there is Mana and Jordan and stuff, but I think the balance that you get from Valti, Frida and Little is really interesting. And I think it complements the players around them. But Jesse, what do you think of the Arsenal midfield? Yeah, I, I do actually think, you know, as you kind of hinted at, the Arsenal midfield is where it feels like there's a lot of space against this Arsenal side. Um, maybe because their positioning as a, as a trio doesn't always feel like it's quite right, especially when Kim Little is pushing up so high, you know, almost out of possession. Sometimes it feels like she's playing in a two alongside um, Viv. So, and I feel like Skinner knew that too. It felt like, I mean, Skinner's rotated through so many double pivots this season, but having Lucy Staniforth a lot more of a kind of attacking player um, in, in there, it felt like he he wanted to be able to look to progress the ball really quickly. Um, and also we saw Alessia Russo like dropping back a lot again to try and I think find those gaps and, and have those overloads there. And there were moments where it looked like United could really successfully do that, but then they literally were just like pass the ball to an Arsenal player rather than counter-attacking effectively. And again, even it was a bit strange having Rousseau dropping back to create the overload when you had Ella Toon there. It was like Ella Toon was the one then making the runs into the box. And that felt just a bit like a strange strange way around as well. Um, I do think sometimes, you know, if we're talking specifically about this this Arsenal three, it does feel like it's a shame that Mana Iwabuchi doesn't fit in because I do feel like she just offers something a bit different creatively to to what most of these Arsenal midfielders can do. It's not that like they're not fantastic players. It's just sometimes she, it feels like she has that extra level, that extra spark. Um, and I definitely felt like in this game, Arsenal felt quite uninspired uh, in an attacking sense. And I think we've seen this a couple of times this season for Arsenal, especially against teams who maybe aren't as good. It's almost like sometimes Arsenal's attack falls down to their their level um, in some ways of, the, of their opposition. I think Iwabuchi is probably the best of, of all of those players at the club to to kind of raise everyone above that. But, you know, look, there are a quality set of players ultimately. And I think, you know, whoever you're kind of putting in that position is, is often going to do well. It's just, it does feel like, uh, yeah, as I said at the start, that, that that is where the space is within this Arsenal team. Man of magic, as people call it. Uh, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's so hard to pick a midfield three for Arsenal because then, you know, once you put Leah Valti out, which is really hard considering how well she keeps the ball for you. Um, once you have that, then, you know, a freedom Manu Obuchi and Kim Little midfield is 
out of this world just because of the ball control and, and the rhythm that they, you know, they're able to control the tempo of the entire match. And on top of that, they're able to create so much on the attack. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then, you know, you add Jordan knobs into that, into everything. And then it's just, it's a shit show to try to pick a midfield three. And I think, I, I mean, I think that's, that's amazing to see, but looking on the other side of this, we spoke a bit about United's midfield last week and how they're kind of nullified in the way that Skinner has been wanting to progress the ball off the pitch. Um, they started this game with standing forth uh, Zellerman Toon as a midfield three. And obviously Shaki Grunin is, is still out with injury, but it is, Jesse, it is true what, you know, having Alessio Russo drop in the space where Elotun is thrives so well in is, is kind of pointless um, necessarily. You know, Elotun as a 10, I think her, is her best position. And if you look at Ona Bait, for example, she's cutting in so much to be able to interlink with the midfield. And I don't know if they have the pattern set out yet, but I don't, the ideas are nice, but it's clearly not working yet. But I'll do that. How do you see this midfield in this particular match against Arsenal? You know, it's, yeah, like, I mean, like Jesse was saying, that I think Skinner has chopped and changed so much um, over the last, you know, this season, actually. And I think Gronin being injured is, I think it's just a problem. I think the fact that he's chopping and changing so much is is, is because Gronin is out and he can't find that balance in that midfield. Because um, I think, again, I think Zellum's not had the best season ever. And I think that's more to do with the structure. I think we talked about it a couple of episodes ago when we talked about United in depth against, um, against City. But... I think it's not helping. I think Staniforth actually out of obviously Ella Toon has, has been really, really good. Um, but I think Staniforth actually had her moments as well. That pass over the top for uh, Zellum that, that that I think Zinsberg had saved in that in that in that second half was 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 a, was a moment of magic, which I think okay, that United have something in this midfield that could unlock defenses. They just didn't do it enough. Um but I feel like out of those three, there there isn't that balance that Arsenal's midfield three had. I felt like like Leah Volti, for example, brought the well, she did step forward and had to move up. She did bring your defensive assuredness in there, just being able to, you know, cover in the, the spaces, whereas Kim Little's creativity and Manum's energy drive box to box does all that work. Where you look at the United three, you're like, you've got Toon, who's a bit more of the attacking threat in, in, in the final third. Staniforth's your creative one. Then Zellum's kind of a mixture of the both, but not really that good at defending, but is a number six. And you're like, well, you know, if you had a Gronin in there, she gives you a little bit more in the pressing department. And I think that would have been a huge factor to stop Volti from progressing through. And I think if we had seen Gronin, maybe we'd have seen a, maybe a slightly different, maybe a more difficult game for Arsenal than it was. But uh, maybe in this specific game, I don't think the three was, was absolutely balanced, um, but it did show, they did show their moments of, 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 uh, of, of glimpses of, of, you know, good work every now and then. I think we can all agree of the talent that United have, particularly in, in the midfield and even on the attacking in general, it's really, really good. But going back to Arsenal, they have they have been in a bit of a slump since that Spurs game um, that we're blaming on Jesse from now on. Um, and obviously a slump for Arsenal and the way they've been playing this season is is still really good by understanders. I mean, they're still top of the league, but it does seem, as Jesse alluded to earlier, that they're a bit, you know, unmotivated, underwhelmed for, for whatever reason that might be. But, you know, they're still scoring. But I think especially in that Champions League, and obviously we'll do a Champions League episode, but what I saw from that game was that they went back to the way that they were playing under Joe, that they were moving the ball around, trying to find those spaces, but they would never actually do any daring passes. 
And it was really almost boring to watch because yes, they kept possession. Yes, they were doing good passes, but it never got to the point of a very dangerous attack and never got shots on target. You know, that's, and that's the complete opposite of what Jonas wants to do. Jonas wants that direct attacking play. And I don't think they've lived up to that Jonas Ida ball um, kind of style play since that Spurs match for whatever reason it might be. But Jesse, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously the the Kyrgyz game was a bit of a slog, but we've seen for many teams in the Champions League that, that those games have teams have struggled. You know, Chelsea obviously struggled against Sevet on that, that same kind of match day. And I do wonder if, um, you know, the schedule, the travel is something new for these players to adjust to. So I wonder if that is having maybe an understandable impact. Um, I think the other thing is, is also Arsenal appeared to be a lot better than than maybe they were. That isn't to say that they weren't playing really well, but they were scoring like lots of quite low quality chances. Um, so they were kind of blowing teams away in ways that never felt really sustainable at the same time. And now it kind of just feels like we're slightly just seeing a bit more of a version. They're still a lot better than those teams. They're still going to win, but it's it's not like quite the same. And then, you know, with that tiredness factor, having the other speed with the speed of play kind of changing everything, slowing down a bit more. I guess the other thing that I, I find quite interesting, especially watching this United game, is kind of the real imbalance Arsenal have between their left-hand side and their right-hand side when they're attacking. You know, I think you've got this really dynamic left-hand side. Obviously, in this game, we saw Catley and McCabe combining a lot lot there and, like, really isolating on Abatia. Um, And similarly, we've seen Beth Mead be really effective from that side earlier in the season. But then in Noel Maritz, you don't really have that same kind of, like, attacking right-back. And it doesn't really feel like anyone who's played off that right side so far for Arsenal this season has really been able to like get into it. You know, I, I do feel like Bethany is a lot better off the left. Nikki to Paris really has just n- not looked good in an Arsenal shirt, sadly. Um, so I wonder if also that's starting to create some problems as well, because, you know, Obviously, when Idaval comes in, you don't really know what's going to happen. Everyone's going in, you know, blind. That was kind of the frustrating thing for, for Chelsea going into that, that first match um, when you just don't know how someone's going to play. Um, but I do wonder now if teams are kind of seeing how much comes down that left side, whether they feel more willing to be relaxed about the right side and then defend more to, and whether that's like helping to, to neutralize them a bit. So I just wonder if, you know, and then I guess one more thing is... Um, no, Leah Williamson, who, as we all know, is mad ball progression and creative force. So, again, you've just got all these factors, I feel like, kind of coming at the same time. Yeah, I think not having Leah Williamson is, is a big one. But you mentioned that they're all about the left side. You know, Leah Williamson is the right-sided central defender. And, of course, once she got the ball, she progressed. First thing she would do is ping it over to the left side. Um, and that cross kind of long ball. And it is, I think that's one thing that Arsenal were missing against Kerr. Um, I think until Freedom Adam came on, you didn't really see a switch of play at all. Um, I, you know, Lata can do it once in a while, but I think she's still very inconsistent. Um, when you put her up against Leah Williamson, for example, she's still she doesn't have the confidence like Leah does. And I think Lata does well when there's someone better next to her. And yes, Jen Be is, you know, a really, really good center back. But at the same time, Jen Be does well with Leah Williamson because they balance each other out because Leah Williamson progresses with the ball 
gets those long balls. Jen B is, you know, she's the the giant that wins all the aerial duels, basically. But I, it's yeah, Leon Williamson missing from that is is a big big factor in Arsenal's play, and it is true that Noel Maritz can do it. Um, I don't just don't think she does for whatever reason. Um, would be really interesting to to know what Jonas is, thinks of Lisa Evans in that position now that obviously she's gone and can't come back. But yeah, um, after the international break, Abdullah, Man United face Aston Villa and West Ham, and what could be a test for Skinner's side. It's you know that those direct matchups that I think we have a lot more this season than we did last. Um, those direct matchups. What do you think that Mark Skinner and United need to focus on on these games? I think structure. I think just, just just get the basics of the structure that he wants correct. These are games that are going to be close, but they're a lot more winnable than, for example, this Arsenal game was. I'm not saying that they couldn't have won the Arsenal game, but it was a lot more difficult to impose themselves and kind of their ideas that they want. And these two games kind of represent a good test for Skinner where he can kind of put down and say, okay, look, we've been, we've played, you know, six, seven games now. Let's, really put everything we've learned into practice and get that team out there to be to play. I think, I think overall, I think obviously he'll want three points from both games, but um, if he can get a good performance and a consistent performance across two games out, I think that'll be the most important thing. So I think consistency across the two games in the performance and having the defense midfield and, and attack, become a lot more cohesive so that we can actually see, all right, this is what he's trying to do. And you know what? It's actually work. It's actually starting to work more better than probably, you know, than obviously in the beginning. And we're seeing signs of progression in terms of the team getting used to the, the tactics. And now moving on to Chelsea. Um, sadly, I'm kidding. Um, Chelsea five, Birmingham city, nil Sam Kerr hat trick, first half hat trick and a backflip. Finally got to see the backflip um, since that Conti Cup final. Um, and Kirby got embraced. So it really was a game for Kirby, to say the least. And Jesse Fleming screwed up her clear chance in front of goal. I was so mad when I saw that. Um, yeah, and obviously Pernille Harder is out with a knock. So we have been seeing Jesse Fleming start in that front three a lot lately. Um, and she has been getting... Like she got an assist, um, obviously, and then got some goals in the last few matches, has been starting. So it's really nice to see. But Jesse, we're going to focus on different things because I think a 5 0 win against Birmingham City for Chelsea is pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, but let's let's focus on a bit about Jesse Fleming and how you think she's been playing in that front three. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it just feels like she could turn her hand to, to anything, doesn't it? I feel like you could just play her anywhere, anywhere on the pitch and she looked good. But um, I have been really impressed with her because it, it's not really a side of her game that, that I expected um, to, to see her do so well. And, you know, I know in this game she kind of missed a couple of opportunities, but in previous games we've, we've seen her finish really, really well. Um, and also, like, amazingly, she now has the third highest expected goals in the whole league. Only Kerr and Miedemar have, like, more than her, um, which is, like, not what you'd ex- expect. Shout out to, to someone on Twitter doing that as, as a little quiz. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's great to see her getting consistent game time, and I think she's really shown how she fits in there. Um, obviously, I don't know how, how long it, it will last, um, but... I think it just feels like she is so 
positionally attuned to where the spaces are on the pitch that, you know, and I think it's something we've, we've seen from her in midfield as well, but it's really impressive to see a player then go and, and do that um, in a different position because I think it's easy to feel like, okay, you know, a player is really good, but ultimately if they play in one position, you kind of think, that well, they learn that, they see that. But to, to realise someone can just kind of do it wherever they are, the way she can interact with Kurt and Kirby um having really just played kind of like a handful of games in that position, I think it's something that's really, really impressive. It is very true. One of the biggest things why I like Jesse Fleming so much, um, obviously the biggest times that I've seen her because she never played for Chelsea last season was in Canada. And she plays as, you know, as an attacking midfielder for Canada and the spaces that she finds in there, the turns that she's able to do because of how aware she is of the spaces that she has around her. It's really, really impressive. And yeah, it is really nice to see um, her kind of succeeding in this Chelsea side because of the players that she has around her. Um, and it's, it's it's just really nice. There was one goal um, that she kind of dinked it over. It was, I think it was to Fran, but I think Sam got it at the end. But I just thought that was a really intelligent pass. And it just kind of summarizes how good her vision is overall. Um, but yeah, you know, Abdullah, it seems like Chelsea are finally picking up where they left off last season, more or less, you know, high scoring games, the confidence is coming back. Obviously the start of the season, the back three started experimenting and it was give and go, you know, it is just the whole process, but you're kind of seeing the fruits of everything now and you're starting to see the confidence coming back and the players starting to get on a roll, you know, Kirby, Kirby, not just Fran, um, they're, you know, they're coming back a lot, but obviously Perniel's not been here for the past couple of games and the past couple of games has been when you've seen this confidence really like oozing out of everyone pretty much. Um, how do you think Perniel's comeback is going to affect that? Uh, you know, I, I think, I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be good. I think um, Perniel is such a good, such an important player and such a good player that I think her coming back will only enhance and kind of further uh, provide quality to the team that they already have. I mean, Jesse Fleming is fantastic, but Panilla Hart is another level of of player. You know, and I think I think some of the um, I think I was you know I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I think some of the fact that Chelsea are playing so well might just be because the the kind of the load across the front three is more spread than it was probably before because every, because the team wasn't in a great position, they weren't in the best of form, still getting used to the back three that everything just kind of fell on Penilla Harder's shoulders to get to almost bail them out or rather she felt like that. And I think it just so happened that as Penilla Harder gets injured and, and Fleming comes in, the team just kind of clicks into gear in this back three and everyone's starting to get used to the system now. And I think it's more the fact that the team is used to the system and that now anybody, because Emma Hayes is all about, we have a system and whoever comes in should be able to play that system without a drop in quality. And I think that's what we're starting to see with Jesse Fleming being in there as well. Obviously, Jesse Fleming is showing her own quality by being able to play consistently. And I think that's obviously a great on her. But I think when Penilla Hardy comes back, I don't think we should be seeing a, a drop. I think there might be a few tactical adjustments, like very minor ones here and there, because obviously they're two different types of players. But I think overall, I think we should be able, I'm actually excited to see it because I would now want to see how it's going to work with the front, the, the, you know, the first choice front three in the system that now actually everybody's used to. So it'll be interesting to see. That is fair to say, yeah. But focusing now on Birmingham City just a little bit, they finished with two attempts on goal. And so far this season, have only gotten a draw with West Ham. Um, so obviously you have that marginal one point advantage at the bottom of the table. But Jesse, what's Birmingham's biggest letdown? 
I think really their biggest letdown is just off pitch stuff, right? Like, you know, we've had the same complaints come up that came up last year around the facilities available to the players. There's this constant turnover of players every summer, which just makes it, you know, almost impossible for any manager to to string a good side together with the level of players they're then having to bring in. Maybe then sack their manager after after seven games in charge. So then you go and play Chelsea with no manager. The new guy they've hired, like was manager of West Brom in the National League for like a handful of months. And before that managed Solihull Moors men's team. It's just like all of these decisions at the club are, are obviously like so poor. And it's, you know, I think it's quite clear that for a long time, this club hasn't wanted its women's team in the WSL anymore, um, which is rubbish. Um, I, I mean, tactically on the pitch, I mean, for, for me watching this game, I felt like Mary Hurahan like really struggled and that was like a big problem it felt. I think if we're looking at how teams have, how small teams have frustrated big teams uh, over the WSL season so far, like good goalkeeping has been really key and all of Sam Kerr's three goals were like tap-ins because she was just like palming the ball out nonstop. Even Frank Kirby's first goal, it's a fantastic finish, but it's because the ball's been palmed out into the penalty area that, that Kirby can um, just basically slice that into the far corner. Um, so I think that that was just really problematic. And and basically they've got Mary Hurahan, who is like really experienced, but obviously not quite at the level required. And Emily Ramsey, who's online from Manchester United and, and also just doesn't look at the level required. So that's what like really stood out to me as being problematic. And then obviously, you know, Chelsea were just able to, to pin them in. Um, they looked decent from set pieces. They could definitely make Chelsea have a little bit of a panic in, in the box, but then who can't? <laughs> I mean, when you have Lewis Quinn attacking a header, you would have an advantage. But anyway, looking at a big story this this week, um, obviously Lauren James made her debut at King's Meadow for Chelsea and probably should have walked away with the goal, um, that one goal that she skyrocketed. Very disappointing. But Abdullah, what, where do you see her slotting in and how do you see her slotting into this Chelsea side? It's an interesting question. Um, obviously, because... We know that Lauren James can play across a couple of different positions, so it's it's uh, it's always an interesting one. And the way this Chelsea at least front three operate um, is is very fluid. So I definitely think she'll start. I mean, it's obviously going to be either on the right or it's going to be through the middle. But the problem is you've got Fran Kirby and Sam Kerr in those two positions. Casually, those those two players are there, so it's going to be obviously difficult to get a lot of starting game time, as those two are going to be the the the, the starters. However, I think I think playing in either either of those positions is probably going to be where we're going to see her. And I think the way she slots in is it almost doesn't matter too much in the sense where the front three are so flexible and so fluid. You will see Kirby out on the right. You'll see on the center. You'll see Skura on the left, hard in the middle that they're just constantly moving. And I, what I think we've seen from Lauren James's game, even at Manchester United was she's very, very fluid. She's very, very, she wants to, like, she almost wants to play one touch football. She wants to take the ball pass, take the ball pass, take the ball pass, move into space. And I think that suits the way the front three like to play. And I think they'll really enjoy it. We already started seeing that connection on the right side between Kerr and, and Lauren James, uh, you know, during that second half against Birmingham City, there was that one, you know, one cross that uh, Lauren James had from a Sam Kerr pass. And so I think we're, when, while we're already seeing in 15, 16 minutes, that little bit of connection already developing between those, the, between those two, um, 
I think it only bodes well. So yeah, I, I can see I can see her playing either position. Jesse, same question for you. Yeah, I just think James is going to be probably used quite sparsely, to be honest. I don't think Chelsea have bought her to like come in and have a massive impact this season. Um, I think we've already seen Hayes is really ready to like wait for as long as it needs for her to come in. But, you know, I think what she offers in attacking sense is so different to what any of the Chelsea attackers um, have in that um, kind of, not just ability, because I think lots of Chelsea attackers have the ability to take players on, but like desire, you know, she does really remind me a lot of Lauren Hemp, to be honest, in the, in the way that her first thought is just like, how can I go past the player in front of me? Not where's the clever pass, that kind of thing, which I think is more often what Chelsea's attackers look to do. And so I think when we've seen Chelsea struggle against low block teams, you know, it felt like when she came on against the vet, it was just like a total like change of pace, that kind of dynamism, that willingness to like run at someone. Um, I think that's where her benefit will really come in this Chelsea side. But like, look, she's what, 20 years old? Like she's been bought for the next five, six years. So I think in terms of like how immediate her impact is going to be, um, I, I really doubt we're going to see a, a huge load of it. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I think it's a it's a process of shaping Loring James to be a Chelsea player because you have her, you obviously know how good she is. You know, it is the, the takeovers, the vision, the easiness. And we've talked about it so many times, the easiness that she makes everything is fucking ridiculous is that that's the only way to explain it it's just it's ridiculous um so when you when you're when you have a team like Chelsea the biggest thing will be shaping this player to be able to fit your system and your system kind of not molding to the player but yeah I mean we saw with Jesse Fleming you know first season another young player another big talent it took her a whole season to get x amount of minutes and now look at her she's thriving really well because of the amount of time that she's had to play with these players so with lauren especially she's come she's just coming back from injury also so i would assume that she's not going to get a lot more playing time than these 20 minutes at the end of games maybe a, a conti cup kind of playing against a lower team to to get her legs fresh but other than that yeah i agree it's it's more about the long-term effect that lauren james is going to have on chelsea next up Man City 5, Aston Villa 0. Hurts to say that. Oh, I made it just a little bit. Uh, but Hayley Razo gets a brace. Uh, Caroline Weir, I wrote Weiss on a running order. So that's, I took a second to reflect on that. Um, Georgia Stanway and Lauren Hemp scored. Um, and a big win for Man City over Aston Villa. Uh, City finished with 23 attempts on goal with 11 on target and Villa just had one attempt. Though they did get on target, so I guess that's a positive to take out of this. Um, but City finished with a 79% possession in this match. Uh, Jesse, in this team selection, there wasn't a big change of personnel available from what there was before. Was this game and kind of aggressiveness in the attack and everything, was this what we've been all expecting regardless of Garrett Taylor's excuses as to why we haven't been able to see this from City so far? Yeah, it's a really strange one. City have now won all the games that they've won this season by a three or greater goal margin. They've just only won three games. Like, it feels like the City team, if they get going against a kind of crappy team, to be polite, um, they'll just like carry on going and then they'll just score a load. Um, but if they, it just feels like they're quite easy to to shut down if you if you know how and what you're doing and 
Aston Villa did kind of know how and what they were doing for the first half. They just, you know, I think you see this a lot with um, with lots of teams actually in the WSL that they focus so hard on not conceding because they know as soon as they concede, it just totally changes the game for them. That when they do, oftentimes that kind of leads them to just capitulate. So I definitely felt like City racking up the goals here was a lot more about Villa's capitulation than actually like some kind of new attacking prowess from City. That being said, I thought um, Hayley Russo looked really good. And I think, you know, to give Gareth Taylor some kind of juice or to give this injury crisis narrative, you know, some validation, the the Hayley Russo entrance from the subs bench kind of did do that. Because I do think it is, as much as I feel like City with the quality of players that they have had, if your team is in a funk and then you don't have players you can bring in to like try and judge it up to try and make it get everyone going again, that is then quite tricky. And I think, you know, we saw with Rasso's introduction how just having one player who's a bit more like ready to go for it and get going can kind of like boost everyone and get get the whole team moving. So I felt like that that was something which, yeah, kind of boosted this idea that obviously the injuries have affected City, but I still think they're just an incredibly predictable attacking team. Yeah, and that's been the case since last season when we spoke about it against when they played Barcelona. It was just really easy for Barcelona to just stop whatever they were doing. And we've spoken about it before and how very inflexible Garrett Taylor is with in-game kind of tactical switches and, and analysis and all that stuff. But going off of Hayley Rasso there, we we know that she's a really good player and I think we've rated her before on this podcast, if if I remember correctly, but Abdullah, you know, she did come on and just have an instant effect. Um, I thought she was going to get a hat trick. I was kind of hoping for it because she really did deserve that. Um, she sparked the energy. It was really good to see. I mean, did she just show what good of a signing and what good of a player she is? Oh yeah, for sure. I think just just kind of what, what Jesse was saying. When you've got players that you can bring in and really make a difference, I think Haley Ross is one of them. And I just she's been injured too much for her to be able to really bring that impact. And that it's like the annoying thing is they're missing Chloe Kelly and Haley Rasso for so much of the portion. That if one of them was fit, you still say, okay, fine, there is something different to bring in. And I think we saw exactly what Haley Rasso brings to this team, kind of what she did at Everton when she had the opportunity as well. Um, I kind of low-key wish she got that hat trick because at that point she was just she scored two goals for fun out of nowhere. And I was like, you're winning 4-0 anyway, might as well just get a fifth, sixth, and score your hat trick, you know, get it over and done with. But no, I think I think uh I think she's been one of the one of the better signings for them. And um you know her her ability to just you know really cause teams problems down that right hand side and and you know like Mas Pacheco's had a had a decent season this season, um, but she couldn't handle uh, Rasso's pace and, and and the way she was the way she was playing. So I think that's a testament to Rasso and coming on you know with such a short time and really making a big impact. And Jesse Aston Villa dropped to tenth place with this loss, though they're now tied in points with City, who sit in seventh. Um, but you know, you mentioned it there of of kind of Aston Villa's downfall. But do you want to get more specifics as to what exactly went wrong here? I mean, I still think Villa's problem is, and it is interesting because we didn't really see this against Chelsea, right? They like frustrated Chelsea really well, and they didn't have this collapse. But I do think. Um, you know, as much as I think she's a legend that like having a player like Anita Asante who can be like quite inflexible in her movement because she is an older player um, is is someone who can be really exposed by the pace of players. And I think that's something, again, when we're talking about like Lauren James, like 
what her impact at Chelsea is. I don't think Chelsea really have, like they do have speedy players, but they don't have players who it feels like they're really going to sprint at you. But that's something that I think City do really have a lot of, you know, it's classic, like what you think Lauren Hemper is going to do. Obviously last season, that's what Chloe Kelly was going to do. Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that you saw here um, where it just felt like when players started like running and as Villa like were obviously trying to push up because maybe they felt like they, they could get something from the game. It was just like leaving loads more space in behind. Um, but I think ultimately like for Villa, a game like this just like it is a bit of a free hit because they've probably already got enough points to not go down. Do you know what I mean? Like one of Leicester or Birmingham are going down. It's done. So for them, I just think, you know, like all of these games are an opportunity to see like what they can do. And I think it's right, like against a team like City, and maybe this is why they didn't do it against Chelsea, say, to push up a bit more. You know, you've seen you've seen this season that City can concede some weird freak goals. So why wouldn't you give that a go? And ultimately, if you lose one nil or five nil, like does that really matter to you? to you anymore in that position so I think ultimately it's something that Villa will feel like they they can take some good lessons from also can I just shout out that like hilarious shit housing city ball boy because that really cracked me up um and I was on the way funny. to um I was on the way to the Villa men's game uh when this game was on and literally all the Villa fans were like watching it on their phone I was like this is the crossover that women's football needs <laughs> Hannah Hampton argue with a ball boy that was really funny. It was, yeah, I was like, somebody told me another way of looking at it about how, like, basically this kid's going to be a douchebag when he grows up. Um, but then, yeah, just like really annoyingly, but it was just really funny. But yeah, it's just, I don't know, very contradicting views that I heard, but. A feminist um, analysis of the Man City ball boy. <laughs> just one podcast. We get an interview with him and just find out what the hell he was up to. Um, but yeah, we're focusing on City and how, bad they've been because that's what I like to focus on no I'm kidding but um a loss to United obviously not in the league but it was a loss to United which you know is gonna hurt anytime no matter where it is I went over Aston Villa and next up they have Birmingham City which should be a win realistically but at the same time we are talking about City but you know overall a good one over Aston Villa and by good I mean a 5-0 win and then when you have you're coming up against a team like Birmingham City, you know, your confidence that kind of just fires the confidence that they got off of this 5-0 win. But do you think that this is kind of the run of games and the confidence that they've been begging for for the longest time now? Yeah, no, I mean, sure. I mean, it, it helps when you have a favorable run of games and a favorable run of fixtures to be able to rack up wins and, and confidence boost. But, you know, kind of going back to the the stat that we had just earlier, City has scored their, their, their three wins have come from three, you know, three massive goal holds, but they've just kind of lost games in between that. So it's like at this point, is momentum really something that City have been, you know, lacking before when they got a big win, and then they lost. They got a big win, and then probably they drew or they lost. You know, it was, it was it's it's been a, such a stop start season so far that you you don't know whether I mean yes, like you said, arguably they should be beating Birmingham City without a problem. It should be another four five nil, but let's assume they win that game and then they go into the next one. And it's after the Birmingham game where it becomes interesting to see can City keep up this two game win streak and then get a third win. Because if they lose that uh, to start all over again and find that momentum going back and we've seen the, the way that they've been performing this season is just, they've just not been able to be consistent, you know, um, obviously we, you know, there's an international break coming up now and, they're going to be hoping and praying that there's no injuries because if they get another injury, then it's just back to square one. And there's a whole other issue again. I will laugh if that happens. I will 
laugh out loud if I read that news on my Twitter feed. Um, but moving on to Ollie's at the wheel. Um, obviously, no one in England can say the same. Well, at least in the top two tiers of English football. Um, but we talked about these matches being very telling to see where Tottenham actually stand, regardless of obviously their results against City and Arsenal. We've talked about Ryan Skinner quite a lot on this podcast. Uh, that's all because of Jesse's request. But Jesse, what would you think of this result and, and this match? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I feel like has been true all season is that West Ham are like quite a good team, especially going forward. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that they picked up some of their best re- results earlier in the season without Lisa Evans just goes to show that like now with that her adding them in, it's like such a dynamic presence, obviously, to have on the right. As you said, Alex, it's quite interesting if we talk about Arsenal's problems there to, to think about, to ponder on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy this this West Ham side and I think I think they've got a lot to offer. I think looking at Spurs... They have, they've never been a great attacking team. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think lots of their improvement this year has come from uh, great goalkeeping, much more organized defensive shape, um, a good, like, very organized midfield press that's able to, like, intercept, tackle, and kind of recycle the ball for the side. Uh, but, you know, Spurs also lost Kit Graham to injury, who I think is by far and away their most the exciting creative player. I think if that's like a long-term problem, that's going to be a, a big issue for them. And and we still just don't really see any consistent goal scorers in the Spurs team, which is just going to leave you open to, to results like this. You know, in this game, it didn't really feel like Spurs had loads of like great shots that's just kind of like Ashley Neville taking like pot shots, which I do love to see because she is having, apart from when Lisa Evans like kind of roasted her for the West Ham goal, she has been like having a good season. Um, but that's also a problem. Like your left back should not just be the only person taking shots from the edge of the area for you. So yeah, listen, I think clearly what we're looking at with the WSL this season is that there is a whole bunch of teams who are like average, you know, and you can include City and United in that. There's like five points between third and 10th. So we're going to see results of this kind, I think, throughout the season. And really, you're just looking for one team to say, like, I can be the team who's going to be consistent. And City and United, I think, have an advantage going into that. But, you know, I think if you are West Ham, you should kind of think, like, why not us? Especially because my worry for West Ham in this game is they do have a habit of um, being a bit like, oh my God, we're winning a game. Let's just all freak out for the last five minutes and concede like a gazillion equalizers. Um, they did it against Villa earlier in the season. They did it against Reading. Um, but, you know, so I think I really, really like this West Ham side. I just want them to do well. Um, but yeah, Spurs, they're just going to be Spursy, you know, and not very good at attacking. You missed it last week. We, we prompted a Alex Morgan return to Spurs. Talked about wow. it. Yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't very good first time rounds. So. Yeah, exactly. That's why we want it to happen. Hmm. Spurs yeah, go, a bit distracting. Spurs go collect Beth England challenge. Oh, ew. How would you want to see that? Um, I do agree, though. I really do like this West Ham side, um, mainly just because of the players that I have. I think they collectively... They're a really good side. I think the level of all the players is really consistent throughout. And, you know, having a player like Lisa Evans on, it's absolutely amazing. Um, she's did she's done really, really well. And yeah, ponder what it would be like in the Arsenal um, kind of lineup as a fullback right now. But Abdullah, you know, Jesse alluded to it a lot there of, of Spurs. Just, you know, we've talked about it quite a lot that 
you know, Spurs are missing that goal score. And yeah, you know, these results are what happens when you can't just put a ball in the back of the net when you're going up against a team that you should potentially match up to quite, quite well. But how big is this going to hurt Spurs in the long run, do you think? Oh, massively. So Rand Skinner, if you're listening to this podcast, which we know you absolutely, which you know you absolutely do, please go and buy Alex Morgan if you want to lose your position in the top four. If you don't want to do that, please go and buy someone else because, you know, you, they've got a good team. You know, it's there. They just need someone who can score goals. And I'm it's like the weird thing is I there are like the NWSL is finished. This, you know, the Mouse Commands, the Svenskan is finished as well. Like the Scandinavian leagues. There are players that you can go and pick up even on loan that are really, really good and bring them in for six months. Like you've really wanted to. And I think this window is going to be so important for Spurs if they want to maintain their their good start. Yeah, they got through and they've had some good, really good results through some, you know, dogged defending and, and, and resilience and all that. But you need to still score. You, you can't just be, I'm not saying they were lucky, but you can't just be like going into every going, going, where's my goal? Where are my goals going to come from? You know, sometimes it's a defender. Sometimes it's a midfielder. Sometimes it's Kit Graham. Sometimes it's someone else. But if you have someone who you can go and say, okay, she knows how to find the back of the net. And at least you can go in and say, all right, we can have a game plan. If somebody else does score, fantastic. It's, it's, it's a bonus. So yeah, I think, uh, I think it'll be hugely important. And now we're going to move on to Abdullah's favorite coach. Uh, Leicester nil, Everton won. It was Jean-Luc Vasseur. It was his first win as an Everton coach in the league. And it was against Leicester City. But it took until the 81st minute to get a winner against the bottom of the table team. So overall, it wasn't really the greatest. I think that kind of tainted his first one. Pretty, pretty bad when you look at the the kind of logistics of who they were playing against for example but we have alluded to that this Leicester side is very very well organized uh, defensively but at the end of the day Everton have really world-class players in their team um yeah I think we could say that they have really good players on their team that should probably be getting a lot more goals against a team like Leicester but Jesse Everton play West Ham and Tottenham next in the league what do you think is going to happen is it too soon for Jean-Luc to prove himself against direct competition? As someone who had to wait until the 80th minute for their team to score against Leicester, I'm going to be polite about this victory. Um, I will say, I don't know what le- the hell Leicester put in the water there, but they just make like these beasts of goalkeepers. I was like, damn, when they lost Kirsty Lavelle, I was like, Ugh, that's it, because she was doing a lot for them. And then they get De- Demi Lamborn in, and she's also pulling out these like, crazy ass saves so I you know I didn't think this was a bad performance for Everton I think I, st- I think Jean-Luc Vasseur is like the opposite problem to Spurs is it feels like he has too many attacking players and they need to figure out like how they want to attack and who they want to do it and work on those relationships and I was really surprised that he didn't start Hannah Benison for this game because as soon as she came on it was like a different story the way she'll like just turn and go with the ball and she makes these like on an angle passes I'm gonna say it's like a a 30 degree angle pass that she'll make like kind of from the half space outside the penalty area into the area and they're just so dangerous the way they cut through a defense when you've got someone kind of running around outside in the wing it's so good I just don't know how she sees them um but like she is the key and if he doesn't play her then that's really stupid of him so that will be my conclusion again West Ham and Spurs like look as as we've kind of said I think 
lots of these teams are like very even. I feel like West Ham and Spurs will have an advantage over Everton just in terms of like the confidence of the results those teams have been able to get, whereas Everton's results have just been generally pretty pants. So I feel like in some ways... It's just funny because because the league's so close. If Everton win those games, then suddenly like they're flying and they could be looking like towards Champions League football. But really, I think West Ham and Spurs should they're the games that they sh- they should definitely be winning. Like this is a team who's like not very confident. They've got new manager in, but hasn't really seemed to make much difference. And like we should win. And I think that is probably what happens. But the like level of quality is so close. I feel like it could really go either way. Everton Lyon in the Champions League next season. It's happening. But Abdullah, you know, obviously a lot to talk about there, but what do you think that Jean-Luc should reflect on during this international break? First of all, Rianne, if you're listening to this again, go to Everton, pick up an attacking player. You'll be good. They have too many. It's fine. You can just poach one from there. Anyway, what can we reflect on? I think he needs to figure out what his best 11 is. I think that's the first thing. And Hannah Benison, Jesse said I agree completely. Hannah Benison needs to be in there. She's so creative. She's so good. Um, that I like her. I actually also really like um, Kenza, uh, Kenza Dali in this team. I think she's been one of their better players throughout this whole mess that they've been having. Because even against United, when she was able to get on the ball, when they were actually get, able to get her into space in midfield, or her, her passing was, was phenomenal. So when you've got two players like Benison and Dali, who can really unlock a defense. I really feel like he needs to now, you know, he needs to utilize it. And I think he needs to figure out a system or change the structure or kind of make the structure so that he is getting his two most creative players in, in space to unlock the, you know, the world-class front front line that he potentially has. You know, you've got Anna Anvergaard, Valerie Gauvin has proven that she can score goals. Claire Emsley has become a new player. And, you know, you know, you've got these three players who you can really build the front line around or, you know, you can actually want well, to interchange or whatever. But if I, I think he needs to he needs to get those midfielders in space, get them playing well. And then obviously defensive structure is important. Maybe even switching to a three, three at the back. If, you, if you're conceding goals and you're and you're struggling to score against a Leicester, for example, and just in the 81st minute, maybe switch to a three properly and then go into a system like that. It's not like he hasn't done it before. He's done it once or twice. But um, yeah, I think just, <clears throat> I think for me, the main focus is get your most creative players at, at the center of your uh, structure and then try and work around that. Because if you can get them to create chance, you'd rather want them to be creating chances in your, in your front lines to possibly just putting one or two extra wide here and there, because at least you're making chances. Uh, and then obviously the defensive structure. So I'd say those are the two main takeaways. I think that is fair to say. And now moving on to the last game of Reading to Brighton nil. Brighton sees a loss in the league for the first time since October 2nd versus Chelsea. And it comes against Reading, who haven't been the greatest. I think we've, we've spoken about it, how they've dropped off a little bit um, compared to how they did last season. But Brighton had 12 attempts on goal, with just one on target, whereas Reading finished with eight attempts on goal and three on target and obviously with two goals. And Brighton stay in third place, though, still in that Champions League spot. And Reading jumped to eighth, being tied with points with City, Everton and Aston Villa. I feel like everyone is tied on points now. Um, but Jesse, was this a statement win from Reading? Kelly Chambers is my new enemy because I literally wrote a piece this week that Reading were actually bad, um, even though they'd got like seven points in three games and scored eight goals. Uh, and then they'd play. You're just the game motivating. 
every single manager in the WSL now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Kelly Chambers is my enemy, but she does owe me some money um, for making me look like a bad analyst of football. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, this was a good Reading performance because unlike their previous like wins and goals, it wasn't just informed by like loads of luck. Um, but it was kind of informed by game state, I feel. Like they scored really early on. Basically, Megan Walsh, like kind of really poorly palmed a ball at Natasha Dowie's feet, um, which let, let them take the lead. And then they were just kind of able to defend and then score score the second goal on the counter-attack right at the end. So I mean, in that sense, it is good. Like it it, it was an improvement. I still don't think they're like a great team. I wouldn't put them around this mix of, of sides like, you know, Brighton or like Spurs or West Ham, who I do feel like could genuinely look to push the Manchester sides for, for those Champions League spots if they get things right. I still thought Brighton looked a lot better um, than than Reading in, in terms of like their attacking play. I think you when you watch Brighton play, you can really see what Hope Power wants them to do. And although it like didn't really come off in this game, I feel like that structure ultimately is there and over the course of a whole season is going to offer them like a lot more than what like Reading, Reading really have in place. But, you know, like, yeah, it again, it's great. It just shows you like how four games ago we were looking at Reading and we're like, oh, they could like really go down. And you pick up like 10 points in, in four games, and then you're like, you're away from everyone else. So it does really show you how like quickly these things can can change in the league. But I'm not ready to revise my assessment of Reading as being not that good just yet. They're gonna win next time. They're gonna win three matches in a row now, just to prove you wrong, basically. But Abdullah, Brighton play Man United next, and I keep saying direct competition, but I feel like everyone's a direct competition. Like, yeah, we're we're talking about like five teams going up for this Champions League spot, and I think in the mid, even in the mid table, you know, right now it's four teams, five teams, you know, tied on points, one two points away from each other. But could Brighton get something from this Manchester United game? Yeah, I would say so. I think they have. I think they have a very good chance. I would say this Reading result maybe isn't a reflection of the way they uh, the way they've had this. You know, they played this season. But you know, you you kind of put this result aside. They've had some really good results in the beginning of the season. They've racked up points. They're in third place for a reason, uh, and they've maintained it after you know uh, five plus games. I think a man. I think the Man United game will be a really good test for Brighton, and I think it could really prove and show a you know show a lot of the 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 progress that 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 they've made over the season and I think if they can get that win then they're in a really strong position to kind of you know send a message to the league going all right you know what Brighton might just be the third best team in England right now and and that's a imagine that but imagine imagine like Barcelona versus Brighton in the group stages next year I mean that would be uh that, that would be insane so um you know, we say Everton versus Lyon, the the Jean Luc Vasseur derby, but you know that that Brighton would be a better, bigger surprise, I think, just because of the team that they have and and then the way they've been playing them. But uh, kind of looking at the immediate future, I think the United will be a good test, and I can actually see them taking three points. Yeah, for sure. I definitely feel like Brighton are a side where you look at their performances across the entirety of the season, and there is no reason to say they're not as good, if not better, than this Man United side, a hundred percent, because. In fact, many of Man United's weaknesses, I would say, are Brighton's weaknesses, namely quickly progressing the ball. You know, they've got some like nice structured attacking play, but it doesn't always work. And they're both prone to like a bit of a defensive flap. So I just feel like they're they're at the same level. So I think it's going to be a really, really interesting game. 
Yeah, I do have to add to that to say that I think Brighton have the advantage of the fact that Hope Powell has been there for so long. And as you mentioned, Jesse, it's, you know, she's been implementing what she's wanted to do for so, so long. And the players know what they want to do now. It's just to get, it's about getting that perfected into that. Whereas Man United are the opposite. It's a new manager and they're still very messy and, and kind of not having that that certain style of play, but it should be very, very interesting. There's a lot of good matches. Good matches in the sense that it's a lot of even matches coming up that should be relatively if like entertaining to watch, to say the least. But that's everything from us this week on this WCL episode. Um, as always, you can keep up to date with our latest episodes at BoxBoxWCL on Twitter. You know, we'll tweet out this tweet and then we'll also, we're getting onto it. We will record a Women's Champions League episode um, potentially next week, but go on Twitter and, and we'll get out the information we, when we've all decided on a recording date. I think that's all we need, really. But um, that should be coming out really, really soon, obviously before the next uh, match week for the Women's Champions League. And if you listen on a platform where you can leave a review, we would greatly appreciate that. And thank you again, everyone, for listening and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.